So there's a guy named Ronald Reagan. Maybe some of you have heard of him. He has a famous quote that goes like this. Freedom is never more than one generation away from extinction. It has to be fought for, protected, and handed down, or else we'll be grandparents one day telling people what it was like when men once were free. That might be a great political message. I think it's a wonderful speech and all that. Let me just change a couple of words, because I think it's really helpful for what we're talking about through this series today. Gospel truth is never more than one generation away from going extinct. It must be fought for. It must be protected. It must be handed down. The truths that we hold as precious are never more than a generation away from going extinct, at least in any particular group, in any particular church, in any particular denomination, in any particular family. If it's not defended by someone and passed on by someone, it won't be available to the people coming behind you the way it was available to you. And so uh, one of the things that, that Timothy is going to challenge, or Paul is going to challenge us with is his message to his younger um, child in the faith or child in ministry is, for whatever area of influence that you have, will you guard, will you fight for, will you extend the gospel message in those circles? We make sure that the the truth of the gospel, the truth of the word of God, don't go extinct within your family to the degree degree you control it. They don't go go extinct within your campus ministry to the degree you control it. They don't go extinct within, like we talked about last week, the circles of life that are your mission field. And so have you embraced your life as a mission field to say that there will be access to this truth, to this group, the way somebody provided access to this truth to me? And I usually want to be gracious about the church, and I still think I'm going to be. But the church in America has largely become a spineless version of Christianity. We're too afraid to offend a rotting culture who believes a certain way about the things we believe to offend them. We're cowards. We're too afraid to have convictions, not because we're good and great and we thought of some amazing things people should know, but because God has spoken and we have courage and conviction that what God has said is what is true and right and best. And we don't give that away because people don't like it. We don't say there's parts we'll cut out of the Bible or out of our own belief system because you might be offended by it. And so we've got a church in America that is rotting away in convictionless, cowardly, spineless Christianity. And I can't control a lot of that. But what I can control is where I stand. And what I can hope is to pass on where you sit that you have a deep loving conviction of love for the local church and a deep loving conviction that if God has spoken, and I believe he has, that I will hold fast to everything that he said so that truth will not go extinct, not on my watch. Truth will not go extinct on your watch. And that's gonna be one of the primary messages that goes throughout 1 Timothy Guard this faith that you have received. 
Guard this doctrine that you have received. Guard this gospel that you've received. But don't just guard it. Live it out. Don't just guard it so that it's stuck in a vault somewhere. Guard it so that you have something of value to give to people that don't have it. And so guard a faith that you are giving away to other people. And so I want to introduce the book of 1 Timothy really, really quickly, uh, just from a book perspective. It was written in somewhere between 62 and 64 A.D., This is after the close of the book of Acts, and so Paul is released from that imprisonment, we believe, and he has another circuit of ministry and mission that he goes on until ultimately somewhere around 66 or 67, he goes back to jail and he never gets out again. He is martyred for his faith and declaration of Jesus at that time. And so in between 62 and 64 and 67, Paul writes his final letters to his, uh, to his disciples in ministry, Timothy and Titus, and he passes, uh, he passes the torch on and he equips them all the way to the end to be the next generation of leadership within the church. The next generation take what's been entrusted to them and make sure it gets entrusted to others as well. Um, it is written by Paul. It says it in verse one. Paul, the apostle of Jesus Christ by the command, or yeah, by the command of God the Father. Tons of debate on the Timothys and Titus as to like uh, critical skeptics that want to deny that. If you are interested in such things, there's many pages you can read. What I will say, it's written by Paul, uh, and I read those many pages, but I don't have time to share them all with you. What's the purpose of this book? Why why is it in the Bible? Well, one, it is. Paul, um, a older, towards the end of his life, pastor, missionary, uh, minister, who is investing his last little bits of truth that he can give to his younger disciple, Timothy. Now, he met Timothy in Acts chapter 16, and, and Timothy was already a disciple of Jesus, but Paul saw something in Timothy that God had something more for his life. God had some call on his life, and so Paul took Timothy with him, and they bonded together in a deep, loving relationship. Throughout uh, the times Timothy gets mentioned, it's like, Timothy, my child, Timothy, my child, Timothy, my child, meaning he's his child in the ministry, but they had developed such a relationship with each other that he really felt like a spiritual father to, to Timothy as he invested these truths in him. And so Timothy has been left behind at a church in Ephesus, and already by this time, stuff had started going wrong in Ephesus, so he left Timothy there because he trusted Timothy, and he left Timothy there uh, because it was now Timothy's job to, to start straightening out the messes that were found within local churches. And so Timothy somehow lets Paul know, here's some of the stuff going on, and Paul says, well, here's how we handle that. And Within that, the central concern was false teachers had infiltrated the church, right? And they didn't come from outside and, you know, with a lot of charisma and charm like some of the others, like Galatian, come in and like press people into false teaching. These were guys that were part of the church he served. And Timothy's a young man, relatively speaking, and it's very hard for young men to lead older men. And some of these older men are part of these false teachers who had just been part of the church. They, they were inside the network of the church, and yet they were the ones bringing false teaching to the church. And so Paul's equipping Timothy and challenging Timothy to how to deal with it. Uh, structurally, it's pretty simple. Chapter 1 is an introduction. 
Chapters two and three is teaching segment one. Uh, It deals with a couple of issues that had arisen. It deals with the need of a certain kind of leadership to tackle those challenges. And then chapters four, five, and the beginning of six are the second teaching unit within Timothy. And he addresses some other kind of really small tangible issues and some broader issues that, that he's dealing with. But what's interesting that I would have you note is at key places throughout the book of Timothy, there are three praise statements, doxologies, possibly even one of them a hymn fragment. And so at the end of chapter, at the end of chapter one, I mean, this, this is to the only God, it's to the king of kings, it be glory and praise forever. And then at the end of chapter three, as he finishes this segment of leadership, great is the mystery of godliness. Christ was manifested in the flesh and he was vindicated by the spirit and he was seen by angels and he was proclaimed in the world and he was believed on in the world and he was uh, taken up in the spirit. And so the first teaching segment ends with this statement of, this hymn fragment of the work of Jesus And then at the midpoint or towards the end of chapter six becomes the final one. And it just talks about the majesty of God and it talks about the him be honor and eternal dominion forever and forever. He's reminding us there's some truths that are beautiful and powerful and those are the truths worth defending. And so in a second, we're gonna do like we do um, each time we start a new book. We're gonna read through the book. We're gonna have some of our men come up and, and just read through the book straight through. And so as uh, they begin to make their way up to, to, to read for us, uh, I want to give you a couple of things to listen for. So the first thing I would say to you is take whatever posture of hearing is worshipful and best for you. So for some of you, that might be following along in your Bible. It might be reading on the screen. It might be writing down key verses or notes as you hear it. But it also might be something like just closing your eyes with a, an engaged heart and just hearing the word of the Lord. Right? However you need to listen, however you can listen in a way that most sinks into your heart, uh, I want to encourage you to do that. And then the, the things I would listen for, listen for like charge or deposit or entrusted. Right? That, that's how he's referring to the gospel. It's a charge that's been entrusted to us. And what are we going to do with it? Right? Listen for teaching and doctrine or deposit. Right? And that's, that's the content of the truth that's being shared. Listen for those doxologies, those praise statements that come up a little bit into chapter, or towards the end of chapter one, the end of chapter three, the end of chapter six. And then lastly, throughout the book, you're gonna hear salvation, gospel, savior, saved. And I want you to hear that. What does he have to say about that? Right? Because that's what we're fighting for. And so I invite Matt to come and kick off our, our reading as we go through this book.
And so the main point for the book of 1 Timothy that we'll, go, that we'll share before you, guard the purity of the gospel message, and he's going to give some reasons. The themes that we go through will be reasons. So let's start with prayer. Father, grant us to be people that guard the good deposit that you have made into us. Grant us to be people whose lives keep the commandment unstained till Jesus comes back for us. Grant us to be people who live in godliness and contentment and we're trained for that. Not those who run off after quarrels and arrogance and fighting and these other things. Father, let the word seep deeply into our hearts that we'd love it and that we'd fight for it and that we would delight to give it to others. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So guard the purity of the gospel message. Um, again, if truth is never more than one generation away from extinction, then how will we guard the truth? How will we protect the truth? How will we pass the truth on? Uh, chapter one introduces us to the main kind of struggle that is being addressed, right? As you get into verse three, there's all of these people coming in or that are, that are part of the church and they're teaching a different doctrine. So how does he start the letter? Meaning what is one of the main problems and points of the letter? Timothy, you need to go command the people that are teaching a different doctrine to stop teaching a different doctrine. And then notice there's like these two different directions because doctrine always launches directions. Direction one it's simple. Teach a different doctrine, and what's the outcome? That you live a life of speculations and theories and little mental games with the word or these random theories about the Bible, but it never does anything to you. Actually, it does some bad stuff. We're going to get that in the next point or two. But when you embrace sound doctrine, what does it say? Sound doctrine launches you in a direction. What direction does of people doctrine launch you into? And now you're like, doctrine? What are you talking about? I just want to love people. I want to love Jesus. You know, that's doctrine thing. Well, you're all theologians. You're all living out a set of beliefs. It's just a matter, are you good ones or bad ones? And is the belief system that you have a true one that leads you in the direction of God and people, or is it a false one that leads you somewhere else? And so when it talks about sound doctrine, what's the goal? What's the aim of having a protected doctrine? That there is an active love for God and an active love for people that comes out of a pure heart, not a selfish one, not one greedy for gain as it talks about later, not one that's trying to get something out of God or get something out of people. It comes from a pure heart. It comes from a good conscience. It comes from a sincere faith. Right? And so doctrine launches you in a direction, either the direction of speculation and some other things we're going to talk about in a minute, or it launches you in the direction of an active love for God and an active love for people that comes from the inside, and your inside's being right. And so throughout the book, false doctrine is going to show up. Different doctrine, false doctrine, you know, whatever, they, whatever word he uses. He's going to go through that throughout the book, and he's going to challenge that throughout the book. But one thing you'll notice is it's, the false doctrine is of so little value to Paul that he doesn't even bother refuting it. 
Like he's not gonna give you, here's some reasons to reject what they're saying. It's like it's babble, it's silly myths, it's wasted speculations. It's not worth your time and it's not worth my ink to mess with. Just get rid of it, right? Um, then he goes through those three doxologies at, at clear transition points throughout the book. Why? Because the truth we're guarding is worth guarding. The truth that we want to preserve is a truth that's worth preserving. Now, there's a certain abstract sense in which all truth should be upheld, right? We should value the thing called truth. Great. The truth we're fighting for is about the God who is the King of kings and Lord of lords who dwells alone in immortality and light that can't be approached because of its brightness and its glory and its perfections that we dare not do it. We can't see him and, and we never have seen him and we can't see him now. Like, that's the God whose truth we're guarding. His dominion is an everlasting dominion and yet he walked out of unapproachable light to be the light of the world. God became flesh and he dwelt among us and we get to behold his glory as the glory of the only begotten of the Father. And so it's not just truth. It's truth about this God who would walk out of light and glory to slander and mockery on a sin-cursed earth to bear all of it and then die for it and rise again. We're not just guarding Truth is a concept. So guard the truth. And I think if it, it, this is something, as I taught college ministry for a long time, one, uh, there were two things I wanted students to leave here with. One was a deep commitment and passion for the local church, like as she really is with all her mess. And the other was a convictional embracing of God's word. Right? And so when it comes to here, when it comes to this church, we will uphold, we will protect and preserve what God said in this book. And you said, you know, there's some parts of First Timothy I'm not looking forward to preaching. You heard it. I know you did. Your ears perked up. You might have scowled a little bit even. There's some hard stuff in here. But we're going to guard God's truth, all of it. Not just the parts we like, not just the parts that are fun to preach. We're going to guard all of it. All right, so a couple of themes, and we'll run through these quickly. Why should we guard the purity of the gospel message? First, because God offers a free salvation to the world by the sacrifice of his son. God offers a free salvation to the world by the sacrifice of his son. And so why do we guard this truth? Because it's not just a concept, it's a person. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father but through me. And so Guard this truth because it's a truth about a savior. It's a, it's a life and death truth. You see, there is a hell that we must avoid. There is a heaven that can be gained. There is a God who is personal, loving, who is adopting us. There is a savior who died so sins can be forgiven. There are relationships right here and now that can be resurrected. It is a truth that matters. It's a truth that is life and death. It is a truth that is eternal. And so Guard this deposit. Why? Because it's a doctrine about the salvation of a Savior who is God in human flesh and died on a cross for you, to save you. Let me just give you two passages real quick. There's some others noted there. I'm going to read for you um, in, chapter, in chapter 1 first. Uh, in chapter 1, 15 and 16, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to 
save sinners of whom I am the foremost. And then he goes on to say, but I receive mercy. Why? So that as the foremost sinner, Jesus might display his perfect patience as an example to those who believe in him for eternal life. Why did Jesus come into the world? Who was he looking for? Sinners. The only people on earth that can get Jesus' mercy are sinners. The only people that Jesus is concerned about is sinners. The only people his blood will cover is sinners. Good people need not apply. The righteous are not welcome. Only the sinner. By the way, there are none righteous, but there's some that we kind of think we are. But Jesus came for sinners, and so have you ever come face to face with, I am a sinner? And you're like, okay, there he goes again. Yeah, yeah. Like, the thing I celebrate is I'm forgiven, not that I'm good. I know way too much about Chris to think Chris is good. I know way too many times I lose my temper. I know way too many times I grumble and grouch. I know way too many times that I talk short to people. I know way too many times that that evil thoughts consume my mind. I don't want to think how good I am. I want to be thankful that I have a great Savior. And notice this. Paul is like at the very end, I'm the foremost one, by the way. This is at the end of Paul's life, not the beginning. This isn't on the Damascus Road when he's going to persecute and lock Christians up for their beliefs. This is at the end of his life after planting innumerable churches, seeing massive amounts of people come to faith in Christ. And at the end, he's like, I'm still the foremost sinner. You see, we don't come to the end of our life after progressing in faith and growing in godliness and hopefully walking the path of sanctification well. We don't come to the end of that and think, man, I'm doing pretty good. We come to the end of that and think, man, I was such a great sinner. Oh, but Jesus was so much better, a savior. And then look why he says it's there. God had mercy on me, this awful sinner. Why? Because when I went and told people about Jesus and his grace, it was an example of the lengths and the depths and the breadth of sin that Jesus forgives We won't go into the one in chapter two, but there's a connection between quiet, godly living and the mission of God to save people all over the earth. But the point is this. Paul wants you to come face to face with the fact that you fit in the category that Jesus came for. And so have you ever? Have you ever come face to face with the fact, I am a sinner? And I deserve his punishment. I'm not the good kind of sinner that doesn't deserve bad stuff to happen to me because, look, I'm, I'm not a terrorist and I'm not a murderer and I'm not in prison, so I'm, I'm the good kind of sinner. No. Have you ever come face to face with, I have sinned and I deserve the punishment of God forever? Have you ever felt the weight of that? Your lostness. And then... Has God shown you through the gospel message of someone that loved you enough to share it, has he shown you Jesus, the perfect, sinless son of God who lived a perfect life that you had to live and you couldn't, and then he died on a cross for your sins, your sins. Have you ever come face to face with these two things to where your lostness was desperate, but Jesus rescued you. Jesus died. Jesus lived, and you're forgiven. We fight for this truth and the purity of this truth 
Because God offers a salvation. A life and death, eternal life and death, salvation. Have you ever embraced that, not as a concept, but as a movement of your heart that embraced Jesus Christ as you turned away from the sin that deserved punishment? The second theme we're going to see, what we truly believe will always come out in what we do. What we truly believe will always come out in what we do. And so that's the deep connection. You're like, no, doctrine, man, what a waste of time. Except for the way you live your life is always tied to what you really believe. What you believe about God, whether he is sovereign or whether you have to control your world is a matter of your doctrine. What do you really believe, not just what do you say you believe. Whether or not when life lands in your lap, you run to God who is a refuge and strength and very present help in trouble, or you run to some other comfort, substitute, or escape hatch to, to grab hold of to keep your world from sinking, that's a matter of what you really believe. Is God really a refuge who draws near when things go bad, or do I need to find my comfort somewhere else? Do I need to escape somewhere else? That's a matter of faith. That's a matter of beliefs. Do I believe that Jesus forgives me of my sins, all of it, for the rest of my life, or do I believe that now I'm living by a performance standard that I have to keep up with? That is your doctrine, and it will show up in your life. And so I want to give you um, a, one passage that kind of unfleshes that, but there's more in your notes. In chapter 6, it says, If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words, good doctrine, of our Lord Jesus Christ and his teaching that accords with godliness... He's puffed up with conceit, he understands nothing, a craving for controversy, quarrels about words which envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction from people with a depraved mind, deprived of the truth. Do you see that? If you have a false doctrine, then you're going to see all kinds of false stuff show up in your life. If you really believe that you are a sinner separated from God and deserves punishment, you cannot look at the cross and be proud of yourself. You can't look at the cross and boast in how good you are, but if you have a different kind of doctrine, you can feel pretty good about you. If you have a different kind of doctrine than the gospel, then you find it fine to not love people as a display of being a disciple of Jesus, John 13. You can be at friction if they rub against what you really want. You can fight to get your way. You can divide and have dissensions among yourself. That's fine. If you have a doctrine besides the one Jesus gave us. But if you have an active faith in Jesus, then you, you realize I've got to love people more than myself. I've got to esteem other people and honor more than myself. And on from there. And so you see the the the. Different doctrine shows up in their life. And so, the, so one of the ways we can tell what we really believe is as I follow that belief out, what's showing up in my life, right? In my, we're in Luke today, and it's like, do uh, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Is my doctrine leading me to a fruitfulness that looks like it? Or is what I believe leading to a whole opposite contrary lifestyle and mentality from that and so what we truly believe will always show up in, in what we do. And so you can trace a line 
from how you're living and the things you're justifying and what you look for for satisfaction and where you find hope, you can, you can draw a straight line from what you're doing back into your heart to what you're believing. Do you, there you go. Third, false teachings are an ever-present threat to the church and her mission. False teachings are an ever-present threat to the church and her mission. Listen to Paul as he's closing out his life or is closing out uh, some of his ministry headed to Jerusalem to the Ephesian elders. He says, therefore I testify this day I'm innocent of the blood of all. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Be careful and pay attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God that he's obtained with his own blood. And listen to what he says. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in from among you, from within you, and they won't spare the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw disciples after themselves. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for these three years I did not seek to admonish you, and that with tears. What did Paul know that when he walked off the scene was gonna happen? He knew that there would be people that would rise up within the churches he planted and gave his life and his tears and his blood for that would twist the scriptures and become wolves who wanted to devour people for their own gain instead of serve and lay their lives down for other people's gains. That's what's coming. And then, just a few years later, that's exactly in the same Ephesus he just warned in Acts 20, where Timothy finds himself living with these wolves that rose up. And so, again, I'll just read one passage that kind of captures this this idea. In chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, it says this. Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits, the teachings of demons, through the insincerity of liars whose consciences have been seared. False teachers come from everywhere within Christianity. False teachers fill up stadiums filled with people. And and they're false teachers, not because they come out and say, look, I'm a false teacher, let's go my way. They fill up stadiums because they're close enough to the truth to deceive people. They fill up stadiums because the magnitude of their personality is something that people gravitate to. They fill up stadiums because they tickle the desires of people that, that offering them what they want and what they desire with God attached to it. And they fill up stadiums. They sit in denominational offices removed from the church as snakes pulling the church from her foundational beliefs to their agendas and beliefs that take people away from the word of God. And they sit in Sunday school classes with pet theories and pet doctrines pulling people away from truth that accords with godliness. And they're everywhere all the time. Will we guard the good deposit entrusted to us. They will always be a threat within our ranks of Christianity. They will have more free reign the more we desire to accommodate a lost world instead of reach a lost world. They'll have more reign the less hold you have on your own Bible for your own life day in and day out. 
If you give up the scripture in your daily life, don't be surprised that a leader takes you away from scripture and their leadership. Last one. It limits accusations against our faith. It limits accusations against our faith. And so I am sure everybody in this room has heard some version of the statement, all Christians are a bunch of hypocrites. Now, I reject that statement because I don't think they can define hypocrite. I'm a dude that sins, does not live up to the ideals that God has for me or the commands he's given me, but I don't pretend like I don't. Now, so I reject that statement, but I think we all have met Christians that made it a little harder to see Jesus than others, haven't we? Haven't we all met Christians that, that just made it a little more challenging to believe, a little more challenging to love and follow, a little more challenging to see Jesus clearer? One of the biggest excuses lost people have for not listening to the message of Jesus, and again, it's not, I don't completely embrace it, because I've met a Christian. I don't want to hear about Christ. And one of the things that Paul wants to uh, challenge Timothy with, to fight for in the church of Ephesus, is you fight for a doctrine that leads to a lifestyle that does not give an opportunity for people to say, I met a believer at Ephesus. I don't want to hear about Jesus. I met a believer at Fletcher. I don't want to hear about Jesus. Our lives can either make a bigger opening for someone to hear the message of the gospel, or our lives can close that opening. It's not going to change the beauty and the worth of the gospel. It's not going to change the truth of the message. It's not going to change the Holy Spirit's ability to turn the lights of a person's heart on and transform them from darkness to light. But it's going to open and it's going to close the opening for somebody to hear that message from us. And so that's one of the things. I'll just read again one, one verse at the very end of the book. Uh, chapter 6, verse 14 says this. Uh, I'll read some of 11 and 13, but 14 is the point. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things, pursue righteousness, godliness. I charge you to keep the commandment unstained and free of reproach until the appearing of Jesus Christ. All the way through the book, behind the scenes, there is this idea of living a certain way because we want people to hear God desires to save. So we protect the truth. Why? That's the only thing that can save. We live the truth. Why? Because that's going to determine whether they listen to us or not about the God who is saved. But then all throughout the book, it goes from the background to the foreground, above reproach, above reproach, above reproach. That nothing in your lifestyle, whether it be some of the church technicalities or your individual living, nothing within the way you live your life is going to put a barrier to people hearing about Jesus. Or to put it in the terms of the book, above reproach. Nothing about your life is going to create a legitimate charge against Jesus Christ. A legitimate accusation that could be leveled against the church. And so, will we be people who make an easy excuse for a lost world to not hear and believe? 
Or will we be people who so follow Jesus that it becomes compelling and it becomes harder and harder to refuse the message and it becomes harder and harder to not hear the message and it becomes harder and harder not to believe the message so that I either have to embitter and reject it outright because there's too much evidence in this person's life in front of me or bow my heart that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father and believe. Will we live in such a way that presses the reality of Jesus on the world? Will we live with each other in such a way that presses the reality of Jesus on the world? Will we do our marriages in such a way that presses the reality of Jesus on the world? So that there wouldn't be any accusation that could be made, at least not coming from us and our lifestyles. So, a couple applications as we finish up here. What parts of Scripture are you tempted to doubt, minimize, or ignore? What parts of Scripture are you tempted to doubt, minimize, or ignore? I'm telling you, I am not pumped up about three passages. And that was just, that's just the ones I've counted. But we're going to walk through them, and we're going to try to understand what God means by them and what he doesn't mean by them, and, and then we're going to try to apply them and, and live them out. But we all have those things like, man, sovereignty. Who believes in the sovereignty of God? Isn't that awesome? Go sit down next to somebody that just lost their baby and tell me about your sovereignty and how much you love it. It's true. It's beautiful. It ain't easy. It ain't easy. There are so many things about God that are true and beautiful and wonderful. But you don't live in a world like that. And you've got to bring the two together, right? right? And so... We want to not take scripture and doubt it or minimize or ignore it. What would growing faith look like in your life and your relationships? What would growing faith look like in your life and relationships? Right? If, if sound doctrine leads to sound living, what would, what would growth look like? What would it look like in the way you treat other people? Right? Would, what would humility as a value system in your life look like? What would be, being someone that is quick to apologize and ask for forgiveness from people look like? What would a commitment to the local church look like? What would hospitality, where people fill your table up on a regular basis, look like? Last one. What areas of your life have potential to negatively affect the lost and immature? What areas of your life have the potential to negatively affect the lost and immature? You're not a hypocrite if they're there. You're a hypocrite if you pretend they're not, right? And so let's just look at ourselves. God, search me and try me. We've been talking about that verse for like the whole summer. Search me and try me and see if there's any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. God, what is, I really love my neighbor and I want to reach him. I really love the people I work with and I want to reach him. I really love the people on my team and I want to reach him. I really love the people on campus and I want to reach him. Is there anything in me that's a barrier to that? Because that's exactly, God, where I want you working. That's exactly where I want you working. We have been delivered a life and death message. And we get to steward it for the next generation or we can squander it for them. And so let's be people who earnestly contend for the faith that's been once and all, for all delivered to the saints. Let's pray. So Father, in Jesus' name, as we walk the course of this book together, may your Holy Spirit make it alive and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and that it would pierce past the division of our soul and spirit and joints and marrow. It would uncover all the thoughts and intents of our hearts because we know whatever you uncover, 
It's the, good, it's the good gaze of Jesus that will be looking at what's there. It's the, the gracious Savior that will be looking at what's uncovered. And he delights to save and forgive people just like us. And so help us with that, Father, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So as we come to our time of invitation, Jesus came to save sinners. If you fit that bill, he would delight to save you. If you think you don't fit that bill, then I hope the Spirit is working to open you up to that reality. If, if God is drawing you to that, to that, what response does he ask? That you turn, right? You're headed your way, and you turn. You turn towards the Lord, and then you believe that you put the weight of your life and your eternity on the truth that Jesus lived and died and rose again and will forgive you. If that's something that you have never done, we'd love to talk to you. Fill out the white sheet in your bulletin. We'd love to answer questions you have about that. But do not let the moment pass. If he is gracious enough to convict you, don't let the moment pass and ignore that. But maybe for you, you see some habit. You see some sin pattern. You see some obstacle in your heart or life that you probably realize that gets in the way a little bit. And you want to come and talk to the Father about it. You want to come and ask him, that's the area I want you working. Or maybe it's just a fresh commitment in your life today to being someone that protects the truth and being someone that shares the truth. Let's, pray, or let's uh, stand and sing and respond how the Lord is leading you.